0: Events from the past few weeks, perhaps even the last 10 days, have reinvigorated discussions concerning war. People all around the world are asking: Are we at war? What kind of war are we in? How do you win the war? Do you contain? Do you decimate, destroy, degrade, or even just disregard those who perpetuate who? who perpetrate acts of violence. Now, I will not pretend that I have unassailable answers to these questions. They are difficult questions with complex answers. From my vantage point as a Christian pastor, I fear that sadly one of the more obvious realities is being missed. The world is at war. The world is at war, and and I'm not talking about nation against nation, ethnic group against ethnic group, ideology against ideology, or civilization against civilization. There is a more fundamental war occurring. A war from which all other wars in the world germinate. The world is at war with God. You see, the Bible teaches, Christianity recognizes that ever since Adam took the fruit From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, mankind has been at war with God. Taking and eating that fruit was an act of rebellion and a declaration of war against God. God was the author of Adam's life, and as the author of his life, he had the right to express his good authority over Adam. God told Adam that he could eat from every tree in the garden of Eden, except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Adam took the fruit of that tree, he said, no. God, I'm throwing off your authority. I will not live under it any longer. Instead, I will live under my own authority. That's what the Bible calls sin. It is rebellion and warfare against the God of who made us. Since all mankind has descended from Adam, it is no surprise that we have picked up his propensity for conflict. We know our own propensity for conflict when we honestly admit that we've gone to war with our spouses over the dumbest things. We we see our propensity for war in our kids when they fight over a single Lego, when there are 15 others just like it, right there on the floor. We see our propensity for war in our workplaces. When we and others jockey for positions, we shift blame when projects fail or even step on others in order to ascend the ladder. There are little wars and conflicts going on in our lives all over the place. When we look at violence and war in the world, even if we think that it's on a smaller scale, Do we not see that the same seeds of conflict and war are in our own hearts? The wars of the world and the wars going on in our lives testify to the fact that the world is at war with God. Now the story of the Bible, the story of humanity is about God, the story of human history is about God bringing humanity's war with him to an end the story of the Bible is about how Jesus Christ has come to establish peace between God and man. Jesus establishes peace between God and man, not by putting men to death, but by dying himself and rising again. And once Jesus establishes peace between God and men through the work of the Holy Spirit, he calls those men and women to wage war against the remaining sin in their lives. Jesus calls people like you and me to root out sin and by His grace remove it from our lives. In short, Jesus actually calls us to go to war against our former allies. He calls us to go to war against those sins which so easily entangle us. Now, what does all of this have to do with the Old Testament book of Numbers? What does all of this have to do with Numbers chapters 31 and 32? Well, this morning, as we study Numbers chapters 31 and 32, we are confronted with the people of Israel going to war and acquiring land. As we are reading these Old Testament narratives, we need to remember that while we are reading true history, we are also reading history that is headed somewhere. This history of the Old Testament people of God is beginning to form categories for us that will be fully fleshed out in the New Testament through the work of Jesus Christ. We'll think about this along the way, but for now, let me simply say that because of what Jesus has done, we as the New Testament people of God are no longer engaged in warfare in a specific place in the Middle East against a specific people over a specific land. As the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Paul said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. As Christians, we are a people engaged in warfare, but it is a spiritual warfare. By God's grace, it is no longer a warfare against God, but against our own indwelling sin, our own indwelling sinful desires, and against the evil one. These chapters, Numbers thirty-one and thirty-two, teach us principles about how we're, about how we are to fight. This war in the strength of God. So, with that preface in mind and in place, if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Numbers 31. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 139. 139. The book of Numbers, as you may know, is about God leading the people of Israel from Mount Sinai to the edge of the Promised Land of Canaan. In other words, God is leading the people he rescued and redeemed from slavery in Egypt to their new home in keeping with his promises to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation and that his offspring would have a land in which to dwell. The book of Numbers continues this story. This book, Numbers, fits within the larger book of the Bible. In small ways, the book of Numbers is pointing us forward to the larger storyline of the Bible, where we know that God is leading the people that He has rescued and redeemed from slavery to sin home to the promised land of heaven through the work of Jesus Christ, the one who would crush the serpent by His life and death and resurrection. And this, too, was in keeping with God's word of promise back near the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. Now, so far in the book of Numbers we've seen God lead the people of Israel to the edge of the promised land. But sadly, Israel refused to enter. They refused to cross the Jordan. And in an act of judgment and mercy, God told the people of Israel that everyone 20 years old and up would die in the wilderness over the next 40 years while He raised up a new generation to receive His promises to enter the land. True to His word, 40 years have passed and once again, the Lord led the new generation to the edge of the promised land. We've been here on the edge of the promised land in the book of the Numbers, in the book of Numbers uh, for several chapters now. And all of these chapters in one way or another have been preparing the people of Israel for entry into the promised land. Chapters 31 and 32, the chapters that we're looking at together this morning, also function as preparation. These chapters have significant challenges in them. They're about war and taking land. They reflect on past failures and include warnings. These events, the events of these chapters are necessary preparation for when the Israelites enter into the promised land. When they do enter into the promised land, they will have to go to war in order to remove the people living in the land. What is more, they will have to remember the dangers they faced outside of the promised land. For they are taking their own sinful hearts with them as they go. The sense that we get concerning these chapters is that the unfolding plan of God is marching forward while the people of Israel are called to take a long and careful look back. As we think about these chapters, we need to think about the war that we are in. And we need to think about where we have come from and where we are going we don't live in the same era as the Old Testament saints, and no longer are we called to wage war against flesh and blood. Instead, the battle for us is against the sin that remains in our hearts and those things which might tempt us to veer off course and not enter the promised land of heaven. We're going to study these two chapters under two headings. First, be determined to root out sin, and second, be determined to make it home if you can find the outline provided in your bulletin. But those two points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. So let's begin with our first point. Be determined to root out sin. And as we do, read Numbers 31, verses 1 to 12 with me. Numbers 31, verses 1 to 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets. For the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian, as the Lord commanded Moses, and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones. And they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods, all their cities and the places where they lived, and all their encampments they burned with fire, and took all the spoil and all the plunder both of man and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eliezer the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho." Now, before we even get outside of verse 2, we are reminded of three separate sins. We're reminded of Israel's sin, of Midian's sin, and of Moses' sin. Let's begin with remembering Moses' sin, for this has been raised more than once in the last several chapters. With the words, and you shall be gathered to your people, we are painfully reminded that Moses will not go into the promised land. Rather, he will die outside of the promised land because of his own personal rebellion recorded in Numbers 20. In that passage, we learn that the Lord commanded Moses to bring water from a rock by speaking to it and so satisfy the thirst of the people of Israel in the desert. Moses did not speak to the rock in faith. Instead, he struck the rock in unbelief. Listen to what we read in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Sadly, the reason that Moses did not enter into the promised land was the same reason that the older generation of Israel did not enter into the promised land. Unbelief. This repetitive reminder haunts the final chapters of the book of Numbers. But it also reminds us of God's plan to bring the people of Israel into the promised land. That it's, it's marching forward, even in spite of sin. And this brings us to Israel's sin. In Numbers 25, the people of Israel committed sin against the Lord by fornicating with the women from Midian. These relationships between the men of Israel and the women of Midian led the people of Israel astray. And they began to worship Baal of Peor. In other words, their sin led them into more sin. Not only that, but it led to the death of the leaders of the people of Israel. A plague of the Lord's wrath swept through the camp of Israel and killed 24,000 people. The men of Israel were fully culpable and responsible for their sin. And what we learned in Numbers 25 was that the Lord also held the women of Midian responsible for their sin. Two, Listen to what uh, Numbers chapter 25, verses 16 through 18 says. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. This is why verse 3 mentions the Lord's vengeance on Midian. The Lord's command in Numbers 25 to harass Midian is being acted out. It's being acted upon here in Numbers 31. Midian's sin is finding her out. Because God is holy and just, he must not allow sin to go unpunished. That is what we need to keep in mind as we keep reading. Read Numbers chapter 31, verses 13 to 20. Numbers 31, verses 13 to 20 now. Moses and Eleazar the priests and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of the thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. Encamp camp outside the camp seven days, whoever of you has killed any person, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all work of goat's hair, and every article of wood. Now these verses present several challenges to our 21st century ears. They are verses that many people turn to in order to raise objections against Christianity in the Bible. We need to remember that our 21st sensibilities do not allow us to sit in judgment upon God's word. Rather, God's word sits in judgment upon us. We we may not come to the text thinking that we know better or have a better ethic, or else we will find ourselves guilty of a kind of chronological snobbery. I I mentioned that as we keep reading, we need to keep in mind that Midian's sin was finding her out. And that's because God is holy and he must punish sin. That is why Moses is so fiercely angry with the officers of the army in verse 14. Verse 14. Of all people, Phinehas should have known better than to preserve the women of Midian. They were the ones who were primarily guilty of seducing the weak-willed men of Israel. The people of Israel were in danger. These women led them to act treacherously against the Lord, as verse 16 put it. Rather than harassing Midian by preserving the women, the people of Israel were in danger of falling under their wiles once again and being led astray. In other words, they were opening themselves up to the same temptation that they had faced in Numbers 25, the seduction of the Midianite women. In addition, by preserving the women, the people of Israel were disregarding the Lord's commands to punish the guilty. The reason that Moses preserves and spares the lives of the young virgin girls is because they were innocent in the matter of Peor. They would likely take up positions of, of servants within Israel. Often in, in an ancient war like this, all of the women would have been killed regardless of age. But here, Moses shows mercy upon the innocent and upon the most vulnerable. And what do we learn from all of this? We learn that the Lord punishes sin. We see that in the reminders of Moses' sin, Israel's sin, and Midian's sin. We also learn that the Lord punishes those who entice and tempt others to sin. Sin does not escape the Lord's judgment. Verses 21 through 24 even teach us that in the battle against sin, the people of Israel are to pursue purity. Purity and cleansing are mentioned in one form or another at least four times in those four short verses. After the battle, the people of Israel were to wash and purify themselves from the stain of sin and death before re-entering the camp, before re-entering the presence of the Holy God. That was a physical and tactile reminder that God is holy and that the people of Israel needed to be cleansed from their own sin as well. The people of Israel were to devote sin to destruction. Even a portion of the plunder that the people of Israel received from the battle was to be devoted back to the Lord that becomes clear in Numbers 31, verses 25 to 54. The Lord carried out his vengeance and justice upon the people of Midian. And his justice was perfectly meted out too. It was pointed at the Midianites who lived in Peor and who had specifically led Israel into sin. This warfare wasn't an ethnic cleansing. For later on in the Bible, we learn that there are still Midianites in other regions harassing the people of Israel. This was a war aimed particularly at punishing those Midianites who led the people of Israel to sin at Peor. By the time we get down to verse 49, it's reported that the people of Israel were not missing a single man from battle. Every one of the 12,000 men who went out to battle came back alive and with their hands full of plunder. The amazing amount of plunder mentioned, the incredible protection recounted, and the outcome of the battle all show us that this was a battle that the Lord prosecuted through the people of Israel. No one but the Lord could produce such a just outcome to a just war, and it was a just war. For it was a war in which the Lord carried out his justice upon the sin of Midian. The Lord is fiercely opposed to sin in all of its forms, and he is committed to seeing it rooted out, he is committed to seeing temptation removed. He is committed to seeing his people purified. And this would have been an important lesson for the people of Israel. And this is an important lesson for us. In all of this, we see something about God's character. Something about our own character. And something about our need. Over and over again, I've been mentioning that God is holy and that he can't let sin go unpunished. As harrowing as these verses are, it is clear that God is carrying out His holy justice. He is perfect and righteous, and He cannot be in the presence of sin. Instead, He must punish sin, and He must because He is just. These verses also tell us something about our character. I don't know if you notice this, but everyone in this passage is a sinner. From Moses to Israel to Midian, they have all sinned in some way or another. Moses will soon die because of his unbelief. Back in Numbers chapter 20, Israel gave in to temptation back in Numbers 25 and sinned by worshiping Baal of Peor. And the Midianite women seduced the weak-willed men of Israel and led them away from the Lord. No one in this passage, not one, is free from sin. No one in this world, no one in this room, is free from sin. Indeed, the Bible, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which leads us to our need. The need for purification in this passage reminds us that we cannot come into God's presence unless we have been washed clean from the stain of sin. The need for atonement, mentioned in verse 51, makes clear that if we are to have peace with God, His wrath against our sin needs to be satisfied. How does that happen? How can we be cleansed from our sin, brought into a peaceful relationship with God, and yet not suffer the punishment that's due to our sin? Well, in the Old Testament, animal sacrifices were offered for cleansing and atonement. Those animals bore the punishment for the sins due to the people of Israel. Those animals, the New Testament tells us, were types and shadows of the good news to come in Jesus Christ. Listen to what we read in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13-15, through 15, the author of Hebrews writes, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. Do you hear what what the author of Hebrews is saying? He's saying that Jesus Christ was the eternal son of God who became man. He lived the perfect life, the life without blemish. The life that we have not lived. The sinless life that you and I have not lived. And He died on the cross shedding His blood. He died to purify us and cleanse us. He died bearing the punishment that our sins deserve. So that God's justice against our sin would be satisfied. But He did not stay dead. For three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now Jesus calls all of us, He calls you and me, to turn from our sin and to trust in Him. Jesus calls us to believe that He lived for us the life that we have not lived. He calls us to believe that He died for us, taking the punishment that our sins deserve. He calls us to believe that He was raised from the grave on the third day so that we may receive the promised eternal inheritance, a home in heaven with Him. He calls us to believe that we have been cleansed so that we can come into God's presence. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of Jesus, then I want to invite you to turn from your sins and place your faith in Him today. And if you want to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus for your salvation, for your cleansing, for your welcome into God's home, then please talk with a friend or the family member that you came with this morning. Find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news of what Jesus has done. How he has atoned for our sins and met our need to be purified and brought us to God. Brought our war with God to an end. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, let me say to you that you need to remember that while the war has been won through Christ's death and resurrection, the battle still rages on. As as many Christians have said before, we live in an era that's something like the time in between D-Day and V-Day. The turning point in the war has come. The final outcome is sure, But the devil and sin are still fighting hard. And we'll continue to fight hard until the very end. All of this means that while we wait for the Lord Jesus to return in final victory, we need to keep pressing on in the battle against sin. We need to keep rooting out sin and removing it from our lives. Just as Moses instructed the people of Israel to remove the women of Midian from their midst because they were a dangerous temptation. So we must not coddle sin and allow various temptations to remain in our lives. Jesus instructed his disciples to take radical action in their lives to cut off and cut out and openly confess their sin. Invite other brothers and sisters in Christ into your life. Honestly, humbly, confess your struggles to them. Ask them, what do I need to do to root out sin, to cut off sin and to cut it out of my life for the glory of God. Ask them to help you be determined to root out sin. Sometimes we need to borrow the determination of another brother or sister in Christ in our lives in this fight. The sinful desires of the people of Israel had led to disastrous consequences for them and for the people of Midian as we've just thought about. The desires of the past appear to creep back in as two tribes in Israel make a request to settle outside the promised land of Canaan. Not only do we need to be determined to root out sin, but we also need to be determined to make it safely home to heaven. And this leads us to our second point. Be determined to make it home. Be determined to make it home. And as we begin to consider this, read Numbers 32, verses 1 through 5. Numbers 32, verses 1 through 5. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and they saw the land of Jazir, the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priests and the chiefs of the congregation, Asheroth, Dibon, Jazir, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliah, Sebam, Nebo, and beyond. The land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. You know, as we're reading these verses, very little... Uh, seems out of the ordinary until we come to the end. What's wrong with two tribes from the people of Israel recognizing they've stumbled upon a great place for livestock? What is wrong with that, especially when they have a great number of livestock? What is wrong with that, especially if through military might the people of Israel can possess the land? What's wrong with that is found in the last seven words of verse 5. Do not take us across the Jordan. The whole, the whole movement of the book of Numbers has been a description of Israel's journey from Mount Sinai with a purpose of crossing the Jordan. Crossing the Jordan River was the whole reason that the people of Israel had set out from Mount Sinai. Crossing the Jordan River was part of God's plan to keep his promises to Abraham. And now, here are two tribes saying, You know what? This, this looks like a great place to settle down. We don't need to go across the Jordan. May we have this land. How do you think that's going to sit with Moses? How do you think it's going to sit with Moses after he led the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness to lead them across the Jordan? 40 years in the wilderness. Because they refused to cross the Jordan the first time. I'll give you a hint. Not well. So let's read Moses' response. Take a look there in verse 6. We're going to read verses 6 to 15. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Akol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day, and he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb, the son of Jephune, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. And He made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following Him, He will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people." Moses' response is not positive, is it? He's not inclined to acquiesce to their requests. Now, in verse 6, he asks them why they should sit out the battle while their brothers should go to war. Are they afraid? Are they giving in to selfishness? Don't you think that the promised land would have been a good place for livestock? Surely the God who knows all things would have taken into consideration the great amount of livestock that He would give them when He picked out a place for them to settle. Did they think that they knew a better place to settle than the Lord? Were these two tribes more concerned about their own interests than the interests of the people of Israel as a whole? Were they just opportunists? Was it just convenient? What would this mean for the unity of the people of Israel. Moses, he makes sure to communicate to Gad and Reuben that their request is going to have a discouraging effect upon their brothers. And to make matters worse, this request seems to be trending in the direction of the faithless unbelief of their fathers 40 years earlier. Standing on the edge of the promised land 40 years earlier, their fathers decided that they did not want to cross the Jordan. They brought about the disastrous consequences, most especially the Lord's anger. The actions of Reuben and Gad threatened to raise the Lord's anger again. And Moses is saying that they're endangering the nation as a whole. Like Adam, these two tribes see something and they want to take it. While God has promised to give them something much better still with their hearts and eyes set on something different. Read their revised proposal in Numbers 32 verses 16 through 19. 16 through 19. Then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we will take up arms, ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live In the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond. Because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan, to the east. Don't you love how they're setting the terms of the negotiation? This is what we're going to do, by the way. Keep reading. So Moses said to them, if you will do this. If you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of the obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do it, If you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure that your sin will find you out. The long and short of this is that the people of Reuben and Gad agree to fight in the conquest. So long as they can take their inheritance outside the promised land. In verses 20 to 24, we see that Moses consents to this request. But notice the warning there in verse 23. Moses warns Reuben and Gad that they do not keep their promise. Their sin will find them out. They knew this too, because, as we just saw, the sin of Midian found them out. The Lord would not leave the guilty unpunished. Verses 25-38 through recount the formalization of this covenant agreement. And another surprise crops up there in verses 39 to 42, the last verses of the chapter. Another tribe, Manasseh, is introduced, and we learn that they they too took land outside the Jordan River. From a narrative standpoint, it seems like the defections have begun. Remember how Moses warned Reuben and Gad that their actions would discourage the other tribes in Israel from crossing over? Well, it feels as if the discouragement of the other ten tribes has begun, and this does not bode well for Israel's future. Before the people of Israel even cross the Jordan River, before they even enter the land flowing with milk and honey, at least two of the tribes settle for second best. Now, the Lord would later use this settlement of these two tribes outside the promised land for his glory showing the expanding kingdom and riches of Israel. But we should still take a close look at why this does not bode well for Israel's future. In verse 6, Moses points out what is motivating Reuben and Gad is convenience and comfort. Gad and Reuben will sit outside the promised land on their cushy land with their fortified cities while their brothers will give themselves to obeying the Lord's command to cross over. Obedience is hard, especially when convenience and comfort are available options. But we understand this as people who live in a society that's replete with convenience and comfort. We've got drive through Starbucks coffee shops and drive up grocery stores and Amazon Prime. And I don't bring those up as if to say they're sinful or bad in and of themselves. They're not. I use some of them. Um, they're, they're wonderful and great, but those are just a few examples of convenience and comfort in a society that is, in many ways, oriented towards self-gratification, comfort, and convenience. We need to recognize that we swim in the cultural waters of comfort and convenience, and that it may be a spiritual danger to us and to others Pastor Ian Duguid said, said this quote, This is surely a prime temptation of affluence. The more we have, the more comfortable we become with what we have, and the harder it is to give it up for the sake of others. We become inwardly focused on maintaining our own personal standard of living, and we easily lose sight of the needs of our brothers and sisters. We become self sufficient and isolated from others. We must be on guard against worldliness and greed. Well, did William Gernall say, nothing is more contrary to a heavenly hope than an earthly heart. I wonder if you see Moses' concern. He is concerned about God's glory and the fulfillment of his promises to bring the whole people of Israel into the promised land. Moses is sensitive and concerned about the attitudes and actions of one or two tribes on the whole, Moses recognizes that if the people of Israel are to make it home to the promised land of Canaan, they will have to go together. The same is true for the Christian life. If you're walking alone, I fear that you're not going to make it home. The Bible often portrays Christians as sheep, and that's not because we're thick-headed and slow, though sometimes we are, it's because we need to be led by the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ. The Bible portrays Christians as sheep because we need to be in sheepfolds as we're led by Jesus. One sheep does not make a flock. We're not meant to walk alone. Even if you are a member of a church, you can still walk alone. You can turn up here, have a, few perfunctory conversations get out the door and not see or meaningfully engage another brother or sister in christ the rest of the week christian let me encourage you to carve out space in your life and especially on your sundays to have meaningful relationships and conversations with other brothers and sisters in christ go downstairs grab a cup of coffee ask another brother or sister a question about the sermon steal one from the back of the outline you don't have one to ask ask how you can pray for another brother or sister in Christ share with them how how they can pray for you in the week ahead these are simple relational connections that we can and should make so that we're linking arms with one another with another brother or sister in Christ who can help hold us up when we become weary in our travels home to heaven And I love it for how so many of you stick around and talk for a long time. The the lights start getting turned off and you start looking around. Well, maybe that's the signal that we should go. That's fine, but there's plenty of light coming in too. You're welcome to stay and talk. We we need to go together if we're going to make it home to heaven. You weren't meant to live the Christian life alone. You were meant to live in a community of believers, a, a group of redeemed sinners who will help you walk by faith. You are weak, but Christ is strong. And he uses Christians to impart strength to you. John Bunyan, in his wonderful little book, Pilgrim's Progress, makes this point vividly in the last 10 pages or so. And right now, I am giving you permission, you have permission, to skip ahead to the very end of the book, the last 10 pages or so, and be edified. Near the end of the book, Christian, he is, he's making his way toward heaven. Christian, he's the, he's the main character in Bunyan's book. And standing between Christian and the celestial city is the black river, which he must cross if he's going to make it home to heaven. Christian, he, he despairs of the river and sees no easy way through. He doubts in the river and struggles for faith. And yet there stands his friend, Hopeful. When Christian doubts himself, Hopeful reminds Christian that Jesus has made him whole. Hopeful points Christian away from himself and to Jesus. It is at Hopeful's encouragement that Christian begins to walk with stronger faith and he reaches the celestial city. Christian, you, Christian, find a hopeful if you're weak and struggling. And hopeful, find a weak and struggling Christian. Let's help each other make it home to heaven. Children, there, there will come a time when your parents no longer wake you up on Sunday mornings and drag you out of bed and bring you to church. They will walk you as far as they can towards the Lord Jesus and his people, but only you can put one foot in front of the other and follow Jesus in faith. Talk with your parents today about what it means to follow Jesus in the fellowship of his church, what that looks like practically, and how they make it a priority in their own lives, not just on Sundays, but also throughout the week. Christian, let me encourage you to be willing to listen to the concerns of another mature Christian in your life. If if, if they're concerned about something in your life, don't, don't dismiss them. There is a culture of defensiveness that exists in our world, but it can't exist in our church. The Lord put other brothers and sisters into our lives for a good reason. To speak truth to us when we need to hear it, but don't want to. Remember that your Holy Spirit-filled brother or sister in Christ is speaking truth to you because they love you and because they want to see you make it home to heaven. And this is where I want us to conclude. Not only do we personally need to be determined to make it home to heaven, and, and part of that determination shows itself in being determined to root out sin, and wage war against sin in our lives but we also need to be determined to help our brothers and sisters make it home to the promised land of heaven and we want to make it home to heaven because as the Puritan minister John Boyce once said in heaven there is no warfare there's all welfare let us look forward to the day when the wars of this world and the wars that are raging in our hearts have been fully and finally brought to an end by the consummated reign of the Prince of Peace. Let's pray together.